Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to look at what can be done to treat hypermobility and to how to improve our lives given our circumstances. I want to start out by thanking all the people who have reached out and emailed to suggest guests. These contacts have been helpful, and as a result, we have some exciting new episodes coming up in the future. And thank you to all of our listeners. We really appreciate your time and your feedback. On today's episode, our guest is a practitioner who has treated patients with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome for decades. Dr. Kevin Lasko is a board-certified chiropractor with extensive neurological background experience who owns and operates his own practice called Hemispheres in Quarryville, Pennsylvania. Dr. Lasko's practice treats many of the signs and symptoms of hypermobility conditions including Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. His treatments have addressed issues like high heart rate, tachycardia, increased sweating, gastroparesis, sleep difficulties, issues with swallowing, and issues associated with mast cell activation and brain fog. He also treats movement disorders, including dystonia, tremors, and twitches. Dr. Lasko also has significant experience in working with POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, including symptoms like changes in heart rate, blood pressure issues, dizziness, and loss of balance. He is also highly experienced in dealing with cervical spine instability, which is a major issue for many patients with hypermobility conditions. And his practice uses a digital motion x-ray, a DMX, to evaluate cervical spine dysfunction, including cranial cervical instability and atlantoaxial instability. Dr. Lasko's appointments involve individualized care with multi-hour appointments to evaluate his patients in their entirety. He also provides a three to five day treatment plan program or longer, as well as individualized at-home programs. Dr. Lasko, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Oh, it's my honor to be here. Thanks for having interest in what I do. Oh, very interested. Um, Let's jump right in. Let's start out by talking about your training and experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what a chiropractic neurologist is and your course of study and experience in that role? Sure. Yeah. Once you graduate uh, chiropractic college, you have the opportunity to do uh, postgraduate training in various different uh, courses. I really liked neurology, so I uh, uh, I kind of focused my time trying to get uh, a better understanding of neurology. And uh, after, oh, probably an additional three or four years of taking classes, being test tested, passing the tests, and keep going on, um, you take an like an end exam to make sure that you understand what was done. And then you become a board certified chiropractic neurologist. And then if you keep going, you can get a fellowship in it, which I also have. Excellent. And what in your life led you to think that this was the, the role or the position for you? Like what, what about this kind of spoke to you or, or what, what were you seeking in pursuing this track? Neurology touches everything in your body. I mean, it really does from uh, 
controlling your autonomic nervous system, controlling your motor system. Uh, it gets input from the sensory system. So it uh, seems like it's kind of important. So I wanted to know a lot about it <laughs> so I could treat, you know, patients better. That's wonderful. That's, that's a great origin story. Um, now let's talk a little bit about your experience working with patients with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and related conditions like Austral Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome or POTS. How did you learn about these conditions and what was that process like for you? Yeah, I think um, just like most of the practitioners, you you saw patients that had all these things going on, whether it was tachycardia and GI paresis and uh, peripheral stuff going on. They would their hands would model. Their hands were always cold. Uh, they, um, you know, they could move really well. They move a lot, <laughs> you know, with with uh, with the connective tissue disorder. And mm -hmm. uh, it just like the other practitioners, you know, it it kind of came into its own about eight or ten years ago, twelve years ago. And you started seeing these patients and uh, you started to kind of put together some of these comorbid things that all of them had. And it just really interested me. I mean, it, it really, really did because, uh, and hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about this, but um, it, it, it really hones in, at least from my perspective, looking at the physiology behind some of the comorbidities, that uh, there's a system that's really broke in a lot of these patients, and if it's not addressed, and I'm even going to say addressed correctly, they could really have a tough time of their of just living. I mean, they really, really could. Absolutely. And so, what in dealing with with these patients with these conditions, as you just discussed, and these things that can go wrong? What What was your first introduction into the world of connective tissue and where that meets the other areas of your practice? Like where does the rubber meet the road? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, question, but I had a DMX machine, the digital motion X-ray for probably 15 years now, maybe 17 years. And um, a lot of times patients that were involved in motor vehicle accidents and things like that would come in to get imaging done. And uh, you would see some instability at times in the upper neck from actual trauma to that area. But then at times you would see some patients come in where, you know, no trauma, no slip falls, and you would actually see worse move movement in their neck mm. <laughs> at, at times than from an injury. And it just kind of happened that those were probably a lot of my early EDS patients and those were usually the ones that were really uh, challenging, we'll say, to treat because of yeah. all these comorbid things that are going on with, with them. And it just kind of um, opened my eyes to this. There were uh, the first, uh, what really got me into this was uh, Dr. Claire Frank Amano. She found out about me and doing some of the imaging and Dr. Henderson found out about the imaging. And that's kind of my, that dovetailed into me getting all of you great patients. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's great that you sort of noticed that and made that connection. And it's so, it's interesting. And it, it reminds me of the fact that many of the 
essentially all of the issues that affect the hypermobile community can affect the general population. It's mm-hmm. just maybe we're more susceptible. I mean, so having the hypermobile ligaments, like we move more, maybe we're more sort of predisposed to certain injuries, but anyone can get in a car accident and have, you know, a neck instability. And so understanding how the spine and the nerves work is essential regardless. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So I guess let's start going into a little bit of the controversy around chiropractic practices. I think it's important to sort of address controversial issues head on. And it's so interesting to me how chiropractic services are viewed, especially in the hypermobile community. Some people swear by their chiropractors and get immense benefit from their experiences. And some have negative stories. And some people are concerned about the rapid neck manipulations that some chiropractors use. I myself have had a mixed past with chiropractors. I saw one for years and I thought it helped temporarily relieve my symptoms, but they continue to get worse in the long run. And I don't know if that was due to the treatments that I was getting or if I was just deteriorating. You know, it's impossible to sort of parse out what led to what. But it's so interesting because the the idea of chiropractic medicine with Ehlers-Danlos is so controversial because there's very many people who are against it or think, no, this is just completely inappropriate for hypermobile patients. And then there's sort of a select group who are like, no, this is greatest thing ever. This is what we need. And yet to me, it feels like there's there's something in the middle there. And there's something lost in translation to the extent that not all chiropractic medicine is the same, right? Like there's sort of this broad brush dismissal in in a lot of the controversy. So this is a sort of long-winded way of saying, what are your views on this controversy and the role that chiropractors can play with hypermobile patients? Yeah, you're kind of throwing me into the fire here, but I'm okay with that. (laughs) Um, I think with anything, you can't be all black or all white. You know what I mean? That you can't be either 100% for it or 100% against it. There has to be some something in the middle. And I think that's where a lot of the individualized care really has to be looked at because the, the actual adjustment is a big input into your central nervous system. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a big neurologic input. And I hope we get to talk a little bit about this, but that's the, in, in my, I guess the way I look at patients, that's a really key point because the chiropractic adjustment is a great thing if it's done correctly and at the right time and if it's appropriate for the patient. I have had, I personally, this is just me because of the patient base that I see, I don't adjust a lot of patients because I kind of see some very, very sick patients, either flat boards or different tubing coming out of them and all that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's different, but there are different techniques that are very effective. Again, if it's appropriate for the patient, I think that's the big thing is that I don't like the P word, which is protocol. 
I'm not a big fan of that. I think you have to look and examine, and that's why I really like the neurologic background that I have, because it really allows me to hone in on what patients would benefit from what therapy the best, because I think in a lot of the EDS patients and a lot of the people with EDS that have a lot of the comorbidities that come with it, I think they're asked to do too much in the very beginning of their care or too much because they're doing X protocol for X comorbidity or whatever. And I just think that's a problem with care just in general, but especially with the EDS group and their population, because they are, um, you really have to take into consideration the excessive movements they have in the joints because we're, I'm going to go a little bit here. I hope that's okay. But we are sensory driven. Mm -hmm. Uh, Humans are sensory driven and we are what we see, smell, touch, taste here. I always use the example, you can have a blonde hair, blue eyed mom and dad give birth to a blonde hair, blue eyed child in the middle of like a cornfield in like Kansas. But if all that child is exposed to is Mandarin Chinese, that child's going to speak Mandarin Chinese. It could care less what the parents are, what their genes are. You're going to speak what you're what you've been taught. And that goes for your brain. Your brain is developed by sensory input. Mm-hmm. And the EDS population moves, might I say, a little funky <laughs> at times mm-hmm. with their mm-hmm. joints. Mm-hmm. Um that gives them some different input than somebody that does not have EDS. And that that has to be addressed not only with the chiropractic manipulation or the adjustment, but it also you have to understand that when you're formulating a treatment plan for them, because that affects how the brain is formed and how the brain functions with some of the descending pathways coming down to control your overall health. Absolutely. And that reminds me of another patient advocate who's putting out some work that's coming out soon. I guess shout out to Libby Hensley. Uh, She talks about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of talking about yoga. But I think like that concept applies to chiropractic medicine as well. Like it's we live in this very hypersensitized time, and of course, we all resonate with the horror stories and, and extreme examples, but we really have to dig into the nuance of whatever we're looking at, whatever practice and whatever patient, and figure out where the right fit is. Nothing is black and white, and we have to come up with, you know, really tease out and figure out what is best based on our limited information that we have. But this kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater approach that unfortunately, a lot of people in the hypermobility community are just very either fearful or are against chiropractic services because in their mind, it's just the rapid neck manipulation, you know, and they think of that and that's sort of horrifying to them, which I completely understand. I mean, and it is jarring, but there's so much more to chiropractic medicine than that. And your practice in particular, like you're a chiropractic neurologist. So you're studying this in sort of a very broad context. So I guess I'm just wanting to make the point that it's so important to get the right fit for person, patient, treatment, but everything should be considered in its entirety. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, the I, I always thought the sicker you are, the more individualized care has to be done. It just has to because uh, there are some patients that get really good results or get okay results with the adjustment. And there's other ones that uh, 
that I've seen that in my personal view, I would have never adjusted them because they really had some major things go on post-adjustment. So again, it comes down to, I just think the individualized care for each person, and you kind of have to look at each person coming in as a blank slate. I do a neurologic exam or orthopedic exam and figure out kind of where where I think the best fit would, would be. And I try to have that blank slate with every person that comes in. I'm biased for some things, obviously, of course, but I really do try to just have a blank slate when a person comes in. That's great. And that's that's so much about what's refreshing about your perspective and your practice to me. It really appears to me that you are looking at the patient in totality. And that's why I, I was so impressed to hear that you had this DMX digital motion x-ray machine, you know, to try to investigate these things. Like I see that you're really trying to understand what's going on with these people. And this is a complex dynamic system. And, you know, kudos to you for getting a DMX machine because they're very hard to find and come by. And many people have struggled to get diagnoses. And this is an issue in the hypermobility community. I know many of us have, you know, gone for an MRI laying flat back and the MRI reads fine. Well, we don't have our symptoms when we're laying flat on our back. We're having our symptoms when we're upright, right? And so having the ability to see how the neck moves when it's actually in motion or upright can tell a lot more. And it's it's strange to me that the, the mainstream medicine community has not caught up to the use of the DMX uses or upright MRIs and ways of investigating cranial cervical instability and lateral axial instability because these are huge issues that affect people, you know, globally in terms of their body and then how that affects the rest of their life. So it's very surprising. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I'll just keep my answer nice and short there. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> Many patients with hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, have issues with their cervical spines um, in particular. Can you explain a little bit about what types of things might cause or worsen cervical spine dysfunction and how you assess and treat patients with these types of issues? Yeah. Once there's a connective tissue disorder, I mean, that's a genetic problem for the most part. EDS, basically a genetic problem. Nothing I do is going to un-EDS anyone, obviously, but the input that you get from those joints moving kind of funny or not appropriate literally rewires the brain a little bit different than somebody that doesn't have EDS or a connective tissue disorder. And I think there's enough studies out there if you uh, cast an arm, parts of your brain literally shut down because you're not moving it, you're not getting the feedback input from, say, your right arm. Parts of the left brain will literally shut down. You don't act activate it enough. Our brains really, and the way we function, is really based on a feedback loop from the input we get from sensory input to what our motor output is. And it's not just moving an arm, it's controlling your autonomics, it's controlling your gut, your heart, all of that. And um, the EDS community, connective tissue community, the biggest input you have and the most constant input you have into your brain is from resisting gravity and movement. And you're not getting away from gravity anytime soon, <laughs> unless you know like Elon Musk, personal friend, but you know, and we're always moving. I mean, we're always trying to resist gravity. We're always kind of in in motion. So if if that feedback loop is kind of 
wonky. Your your system is never working the way it, it it should. And a lot of the areas that that input kisses on the way up to your brain controls things like your like your autonomics. And that's what we see with a lot of EDS patients from the comorbid point of view. You see a ton of dysautonomic findings, whether it's tachycardia, gut doesn't work, modeling in the hands, stuff like that. It's a little different concept, but I, I think going forward, I really do think this is going to be, or it's going to have to be part and parcel of the overall treatment for EDS in the connective tissue disorder group. Because um, if you're not getting good feedback from the biggest system, you have to do something to counteract that and get it to work as good as you possibly can via other systems. Because again, we're not going to un-EDS anybody right now. Definitely. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so you use this digital motion x-ray machine, which as I understand it, can be useful in diagnosing issues related to the cervical spine. Can you explain a bit about why you got that machine in the first place and how you use it and what patients may benefit from getting a scan with this machine? Sure. Yeah, like I said, I had it for 15 to 17 years. And I really got it because I, well, I wanted to know what the, I mean, I was a chiropractor. I wanted to know what the cervical spine was doing when the patient was moving. And um, what it is, I mean, you can either stand or sit while the study is being done. And we put you through uh, anywhere from nine to 13 different planes of movement while the image is being done. And we use, once we get the image, we save, save it, then I, uh, put measurements on it based on what the current literature is. And we get out to about the 10th of a degree or 10th of a millimeter, depending on what measurements we're looking at. So it's, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, surgeons that refer to, to get it done because maybe an upright MRI wasn't clear. They're still worried about different areas that didn't show up on the MRI or the CT. So it's used, uh, one as a diagnostic tool is also as a, basically a uh, confirmatory image to say, you know, yep, they meet the threshold, even though we didn't see it on the rotational CT because they're, they had some neck pain and they couldn't turn as much. So yeah, that's kind of what it's used for. And it's it's always been interesting to me because then, you know, sometimes even if they don't meet this criteria for surgical intervention, you could you could tell them what their neck is doing when they move. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes, you know, if, if it's not a surgical thing, you could tell the person, you know, if you're a belly sleeper and you always turn your head to the left when you sleep, you might want to change that because you're really, you have a lot of motion when you turn your head to the left. Or if you're mm-hmm. a secretary, if you're always tipping your head to one side or whatever, you might not want to do that because of the measurements that we got from the imaging. That's fascinating. Yeah. So it sounds like you're able to give individualized movement prescriptions, let's say, based on what you see in the films to say what's going to kind of counteract or what's going to be best for this person's particular instability or dysfunction. Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's fantastic. And I, I really appreciate and I, I'm very interested in how you take such an individual approach to your patients. But could you give us a little bit more detail about your evaluation process and how you come up with treatment plans for the patients that are referred to you? Sure. Generally, I only see one or two patients a week. Uh, and I know people are probably saying, how in the heck? But <laughs> um, I spend 
anywhere from two, three hours with each patient. And like the first day that they're in, we do a really good neurologic exam. And uh, based on some of those fine findings, we then formulate a a treatment plan for them. And then we, uh, I always like to say we examine, we treat, and then we re-examine to see if we're getting the response that we want from the therapies that I come up with. It's it's a really, I just find it's a very uh, concise kind of way to do this because the examination, it's a neurologic exam. Uh, other people know how to do neurologic exams. I mean, I'm not the only one that knows how to do these, but I think I just look at it a little different. Just as an example, I don't know if that'd be help, helpful or not, but there's a test called Romberg's test where you stand kind of eyes closed, feet feet together. And some people have them put their arms out. I don't. I just have them put their arms down by their side. And a po- technically, a positive test is if you take a step because you're losing balance. And I always see on a lot of reports, negative Romberg's, okay, when I do it to somebody, they'll always, like just an example, a patient will always sway center to right, center to right, center to right. Technically, it's not a positive test because they didn't take a step, but why are they only going to the right, right? Why are they not going to the left? And mm-hmm. it's things like that with eye exercise or like eye motions. Most neurologic exams include cardinal fields of gaze or pursuits or or saccades, the quick eye motions. And, you know, most of the time you see WNL within normal limits, but there's a big difference if you're doing, say, a pursuit to one side and the person can't follow your thumb all the way over and they have like a little stop in the middle and then a catch up. They got to the end point but that's why isn't it like that going the other way, you know, and those are little neurologic, I guess, in t- interpretations that might mm-hmm. not be path pathological, but they're physiologic problems that I try to tease out to say where in the brain, brainstem, cerebellum, vis- vestibular system, midbrain, where's there a little blip? And it's kind of like, you're probably not old enough, but when I was young, uh, we would play this little telephone game where like I would start a story, I'd tell it to my wife, she'd tell it to you, she'd tell it, you'd tell it to your friend and you go down the line. And that last person should repeat what I said. They, they never do. And, but so who was the person that messed the story up? You know, who was it? My wife? Was it you? And that's kind of the central nervous system when I examine some somebody. It's like, where... Where in that pathway did it get kind of screwed up? And then you try to correlate these, from my perspective, you try to correlate that to, hey, does it make sense that if this area isn't working well in the brainstem, that somebody could have tachycardia, GI problems, difficulty delivering blood? And that's how I formulate my care. That's fa- that's fantastic, and it's such an interesting and unique perspective. And I think it goes back to the name of your practice, hemispheres. Like you're really <laughs> focused on the hemispheres of the brain and how they act in concert, or I guess in discord, uh, in times of distress or disruption uh, to some degree. It's fascinating to think about it that way, and I, th- I think this is a really unique perspective on not only. Chiropractic medicine and neurology, but EDS patients as well, um, taking this very individualized approach. And I've seen some of the testimonials of 
you know, patients of yours. And there's some, there's an, something intuitive that's very interesting, you know, based on what I've read about you and hearing others' experiences. And this, it sort of just makes an intuitive level of sense. I, I know you and I talked uh, previously about dominance, side dominance, and uh, how, I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my understanding was that you were saying that people with hypermobile conditions tend to have maybe a more dominant side. Is that right? Yeah, generally, and, and this is again, a big blanket, but you will see patterns that arise with a lot of the patients that have different comorbid problems that that come out if you do the exam correctly. And, uh, and it could be right or left hemisphere. And, and that's where the exam, I think, is so important and being able to pull out little, might be normal find, findings in a pathologic sense but are not normal in a physiologic sense. And we're dealing, like most, I think this is accurate, most EDS patients don't have a true hard pathology. Most of you guys don't have brain tumors. Uh, Most of you don't have, uh, uh, some do, but like actual bowel blockages from a tumor or something like, like that. A lot of these things are physiologic that you have going on minus the genetic EDS side of it. And, um, you know, once you kind of rule out the hard pathologic things, because most of you have been imaged, re-imaged, poked, probed, prodded, re-poked, re-probed, re-prodded, and like nothing hard comes out that's up on an MRI that can say, oh, there's a tumor in your left hemisphere and it's causing all this or your right brain stem. So most of the problems that I see with the EDS population, because I do see them most of the time after they had all of that done, they're physiologic problems. And that's kind of where this uh, hemispheric model, if you will, kind of came about is that uh, some sides of the brain do certain things, so other sides do other things. And if you start seeing a dominance one side versus the other, you know, what are the pathways that get up to the right side of the brain? What are the pathways that get up to the left side of the brain? And Mm -hmm. if it makes sense when you examine the person that you're getting a lot of right-sided things going on. And if it makes sense that, you know, those things, uh, when they kind of break down, you see X, Y, and Z. And if the patient has X, Y, and Z, that's what we form my treatment plan on. Hmm. I hope that makes sense. I think it does. I, I it's a lot to absorb. I'm I'm trying to think through so the the stretchiness of our collagen, like our our sort of in I've heard another doctor describe EDS as like building a house where the mortar is insufficient. The mortar is crumbling. And and so it's, it's, it's just weakened. And that, that kind of spoke to me in a way that just like everything has sort of more load on it and is the connective tissue is sparse and it's, and it's being tasked to do more than it's capable of doing because it, it needs allies. It needs, right. Sure. It needs like more strength. So is there something about the, I mean, I guess, do you think, do you see that there's something about the stretchiness of the connective tissue leading to like increase in in the amount of inputs to the brain? So for example, I've heard about this, um, like this myofascial web that we have throughout our body. A few years ago, there was an announcement, we discovered a new organ and it was this lacy uh, myofascial 
tissue that sort of connects is throughout the human body. And I've heard it described sort of like the container that you buy a bag of oranges in like that mesh web. And the reason that they said they hadn't previously noticed it is because upon death, the fluids, you know, evacuated tissue pretty quickly and it just, it's flattens. So it's just looks like, you know, gristle fiber or whatever. And so no one's noticed it, but with modern imaging, we're able to see this complex fluidy web of collagen and, and I don't know what else. But I guess, do you think our myofascial web and our connective tissue being compromised, you know, weakened in some way, could that be a cause of, you know, increased inputs into the brain? Because my understanding is that a lot of the mast cells or sort of like, I don't know, transistor points for uh, conduction to the brain exist in that myofascial tissue. So... I don't know if that question made a whole lot of it. Nope. I think I know where you're getting at, and hopefully I can uh, at least maybe explain my input or the way I think at it. Um, we're sensory driven, and, and and I keep coming back to that with a lot of the patients that I see, is be, it, and it's because a lot of the EDS patients that I see, they, they don't perceive themselves very well. They don't know where they are in space. They have bad balance, poor coordination, uh, all of that. And I think when you're, I think a lot of people, practitioners, patients, uh, everything, they're driven to look at this end organ thing, you know, and, and I, I, I hope I could dovetail it back into what you were saying here, but if you give me some leeway, I think this will make sense. A lot of EDS patients have the dysautonomic uh, problem, and usually that's a higher heart rate, generally you know, a little tacky, maybe 90, 100 beats a minute. You can get a beta blocker and that will lower the heart rate generally in most patients. And some people will say, well, that fixed the dysautonomia. I look at it as, okay, you, you affected the beta receptors on the heart for it not to beat at 100 beats a minute. It's down to 80. That's great. But is the brain still telling the heart to beat at a hundred beats a minute and you're just altering mm -hmm. the, the end organ, you know, and that's what I found with a lot of patients. Now to dovetail it back with this, uh, this web-like mesh that you were talking about, you know, the, the input you get from muscle and joint and ligaments and tendons and all of that stuff that's a little wonky in the EDS community, mm -hmm. that is the biggest, most constant input your brain gets. I mean, it's not vision, because if I close my eyes right now, vision's gone. I'm getting no input from vision at all. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't hear very well, or some of the EDS are hyper, but we can get into that if we need to. Most of us don't taste or smell very well. Like if at night, you don't hear the, the clock ticking, you don't taste things, you don't smell things. So all the big ones that everybody thinks about, vision, smell, taste, hearing, you shut them down, right? But what's constantly coming in? Your brain knows when you're sleep, sleeping, your right arm is more straight than your left. It knows your head position. You're getting the input from uh, your heart beating. You're getting most of, well, you should be getting input from your gut di digesting food. Some of you don't, but you should be getting that input constantly, 24-7. And if it's a little, if it's not appropriate 
for the patient, that's the biggest amount of input getting into your system constantly. That's that proprioceptive kinesthetic input that you get. And that's a big input for your brainstem all the way up to your frontal cortex. Because if you if you don't know where you are in space because you your joints don't give the feedback that they should from what your brain is expecting, mm-hmm. that's a mismatch. Mm-hmm. And the brain does not like that. And it has to alter its thought process of what, uh, what am I expecting? Because when your brain... When you get, um, this is just a quick example, if you have a cup of coffee in front of you, and if you, some of the EDS patients, their elbows move a little more than what they should when they straighten it out, (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. If your brain says, pick up that cup of coffee, it knows what should should happen when you reach out for that cup of coffee. And when you do it and your elbow extends too much or you miss it or you grab it too much, or it, that's a mismatch from what your brain thought. And it has to rewire or relearn what's, using little air quotes here, normal is. Mm-hmm. But it's not normal if you hyperextend your elbow to get your, your cup of coffee. It might be normally wrong for the EDS group, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a mismatch for... The, um, the space that you have to, to traverse to pick up that cup of coffee. And that's a mis, mis, mismatch in the system. And your system does not like that. That's very interesting. And my understanding from reading about sort of brain structure and processes is that our brains are sort of designed to seek out problems or issues. They're constantly scanning for what's wrong. And if you have more things that are wrong or more mismatched, more miscommunication, I can see that being confusing in the end. It sort of makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint, like focusing on the issues to fix is going to get you further than focusing on the great thing that happened yesterday that's over and is done and I had a nice day and everything was fine. And so it makes sense to some degree, but yeah, it just, it, it, it seems to me that our, yeah, our brains are designed to look for issues. And unfortunately, if you have connective tissue compromised integrity, it's your brain is hit, hit the sort of reverse lottery. It's just always getting input of issues. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, that um, like if you're in a fun house, the lights are off, the score, the floor might be squishy. You don't know where the next, you know, turn's going to be. You're trying to feel for whatever you you can to get some input. Again, sen- sensory input to let you know where you're at. If you don't, I'm sorry, your brain's not going to be real chilled out sitting at a pool with a little drink with a little um, umbrella in it. You're not going to be that that way. And if you take that another step, a lot of the EDS patients that I see have things like they're maybe biased toward a little bit of OCD-ish or high anxiety. Um, A lot of them have a little higher heart rate, like they're in that fight or flight stage. Well, that's what you're seeing because that bad input that's coming in doesn't let again, using air quotes here, like the brain to kind of rest. 
And it's always in that fight or flight that, hey, where's where's the lion coming out? Is it behind the door? Is it behind the chair? Is that knock on the door? The lion is the, a lot of you are very hypersensitive mm-hmm. to sound and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, is that car going in front of the office going to come through the door and mm-hmm. going to cause a big, yeah. So, I mean, you can't, when you, when you're not, when what the brain thinks is going to ha- happen does not match the feedback coming back. It, you're right. It's always kind of on guard. And that's a lot of what we see with the EDS group. Truly do. Yeah. And it's easy to see how that takes an immense toll over time. I mean, we're not met. I think when you and I first spoke, you know, we talked about how like a state of, you know, extreme stimulation and overactivation, like that's not normal. Like we're, we're meant to be sort of we're trying to get to homeostasis and so being in this constant state of being on guard um and alert fight or flight like it's very taxing on the system and it's skewing it and it doesn't allow for the the parasympathetic reaction which is equally necessary you know and in, in, in the yin to the yang i guess <laughs> to come in and repair and calm and rest and i think a lot of us really struggle to even get anywhere near a balance of those things i think a lot of us are really geared into sympathetic fight or flight mode you know from what and whether it's from you know pain from the sensation of a ligament stretching too far uh you know the brain getting that mismatch of where is that but organ it's not lining up with where i think it is because the collagen is stretchy and so the the message is getting uh, if it's lost in translation or something but a, a lot of us struggle with that feeling of just feeling kind of alienated from our own bodies unable to understand you know how how come you know you something can seem fine you go for a little walk and then two days later it's throbbing it's horrible this delayed catch-up or these things that seem very strange and then we internalize, I think, a lot of that and think, oh, well, I'm just, I'm not tough enough. And, you know, we have a lot of cultural competing messages in our brain from our prefrontal cortex telling us, you know, no, just power through, work through, no, everything's fine. And that's, that's like fuel to the sympathetic nervous system fire. That's like gasoline on the sympathetic nervous system, right? Just try harder, just push through. And it's like that, that will break you, you know, that's not, healthy to just kind of keep going after a certain point. Yeah, I think you probably just with what you said, you probably have six or seven more podcasts that you can pull out of just what you just said there. Yeah, when this is a hard concept to get, but when when a brain is functioning really well, it actually inhibits things. And I know that's a hard concept for a lot of patients to get. A lot of doctors have a very hard concept with with that as well because I've talked to them. But when you're working well, when your brain's doing okay, you actually, like the end output is actually an inhibitory process. It's, It's to try to be as efficient, effective, energy conserving as it possibly can. And example I always use is if, you know, if you're driving and somebody cuts you off, you lock up the brakes, your heart rate goes up, you put an arm out to save whoever's in the front seat, you're, you know, you might feel nauseated. Some of us may vocalize some things to the other driver, some may uh, do a hand gesture to the other driver, whatever it is. But after a couple of seconds, 
you assess the situation, everybody's, you know, good. And you start to, your system starts to calm back down and you say, you know, where are we getting ice cream at tonight? We're still going out to eat or whatever. That's a good functioning brain. There are some people more in today's society, but there are some people that that happens and, you know, they turn the car around and follow the guy 20 blocks and pull behind him in his driveway. That's not a good functioning system. That's a lack of inhibition. And that's a tough concept to get because if you look at a lot of the things that the EDS community, connective tissue disorder community, um, the, the comorbidities that they have are from a lack of inhibition. Your heart rate shouldn't be beating at 100 beats a minute sitting there watching reruns of The Office. You know, they just shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But it, it it is. You shouldn't be biased toward your your sympathetics. You should be biased. I mean, a lot of people have this notion that it's either all sim- sympathetic or all parasympathetic. You you have to have a nice balance. It's mm-hmm. not like one on one's on and one's off because mm-hmm. without sim- sympathetic tone, we wouldn't be here. So we need it, but it needs to work in concert with what's out there, what you're perceiving. And, um, and if you don't have that, you've lost the ability to inhibit that sympathetic drive and you get tacky. Your gut starts to not work. You don't deliver blood to your periphery. Your hands and feet get cold. You get brain fog. You might get a little tremor. You might get a movement disorder because you've lost the ability to inhibit that fight or flight kind of stage. I think that speaks I mean, it definitely speaks to me. I think that definitely um, has a lot of resonance with the issues that a lot of people in the hypermobile community face. You know, this has been one of these big mysteries teasing out, you know, why is mast cell activation and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome? Um, try saying that 10 times fast. Um, <laughs> it, like these things stem from, it's interesting to think about them as stemming them from a lack of inhibition and that inhibition is a good thing or, or is, is a sort of status quo basis. Again, air quotes, normal, whatever normal is. That's a (laughs) concept in itself, but it's interesting to think about how that skew towards fight or flight, you know, is, is so prominent among so many people with hypermobility conditions and that has huge downstream effects, right? Not only in terms of the body dumping adrenaline and, you know, the, you know, chemicals not being able to do necessary repair, but then that affects our behaviors too. And we're on edge. We're, you know, we got all the adrenaline coursing through our brains and our blood's pumping super fast. So we hear, hear that little noise and it's like nails on a chalkboard or it's, uh, you know, that little bit of light streaming through the window is painful. So these things that are parts of quote unquote normal life can become very grating or very difficult to deal with because of that skew. And so I I find it so interesting that your practice and your treatment plans, you know, incorporate trying to realign the hemispheres and sort of rebalance. Is that, is that, I guess the way you would say it, re reconfigure the, the system to a slightly less sympathetically inclined state. Yeah. You try to, I mean, uh, I don't think there is an 
air quote normal. It's the way you perceive it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's what that, that is. But if the perception's yeah. kind of wrong, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's where the problem starts to, to kind of go downhill. But yeah, generally the goal for care at my office is to try to, I look at it as like a little pyramid um, with like the base of the pyramid being your autonomics. And because if you don't, you mentioned earlier the, uh, the, the, the foundation that's not quite dry yet and you're trying to build a house on it. I see that a lot because I see a lot of patients that have really bad autonomic problems, really bad like reflexogenic uh, problems where they can't do things from a reflexogenic standpoint. But the therapies they've been doing or the exercises they've been doing are in a volitional motor, like, and this is against nobody, but it's like walking on a treadmill for 20 or 30 minutes, go exercise. You have to push through it for different protocols that are out there. But uh, I look at it as if you can't deliver blood, say they're walking on a treadmill, if you can't deliver blood because you're a little uh, biased toward maybe a higher sympathetic tone, and you're asking the biggest muscles in your body to, to work, and you have some vasoconstriction going on with your peripheral arteries, veins, uh, you're going to fatigue pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And by fatiguing, you go into anaerobic metabolism. Mm-hmm. And when you start to do that, your cells don't have enough oxygen to get rid of everything or just to, to work correctly. So you actually start to break the muscle down to get a little bit more fuel and that's anaerobic. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that point, you start firing um, pain fibers, either C or A delta five, you know, nerve fibers, most mostly C. And C fibers are what the sympathetics also use to transmit. So when you push through, <laughs> you're actually kind of putting lighter fluid on the ambers. You're actually trying to calm down. It's kind of like a that's the reason why you hit your thumb with a hammer and your heart rate goes up. When you have pain, that fires the same nerve fibers generally as your sympathetics. So that's where you have to, again, in my office, that's why we always look at the autonomics first. And then we have to get those un, at least under control or give the patient something to, to do to, to alter them. And then may, maybe try some easy exercises going forward. That makes so much sense. And I think so. <laughs> and I think it, it really feels, it's funny. I just plugged the lamp in, which none of you can see. This isn't oh, that's nice. it's like, it, feels, it, it feels like some light out of this darkness um, because there's so, it's so confusing and it, it is hard to get your head around, especially, you know, for someone like me, I went 29 years of my life, never heard about Ehlers-Danlos, never heard about autonomic dysfunction, never heard about POTS. It didn't exist to me. And then it's like Alice in Wonderland, like this door opens and <laughs> you you learn all these things and you realize, oh, that's why when I stand on my feet for, you know, and now it's gotten to be very little period of time, you know, I, I see uh, flickering, you know, in my eyes, I lose my vision, I get dizzy, I get tired, I get fatigued, I get burning, itching hives when I go for a short walk sometimes, because I'm in that anaerobic respiration almost immediately. And it's, 
yeah, I did that, you know, tilt table test. And I think it was, I think my increase was like 40 beats per minute or something. I mean, it's just, yeah. you, you, you see the, you see that and you think like, that doesn't make any sense. Why is this going on? But as you described, like there is this elaborate process of how the brain is trying to go about approaching our experience. And if we're not getting the right kinds of feedback, we're not knowledgeable about, you know, X leads to Y leads to Z, whatever. We don't understand the component parts. We're just going to keep pushing, keep pushing. And especially, like I said, we have a lot of these cultural messages of like no pain, no gain, that kind of thing. And a lot of that stuff is actually counterproductive when it comes to Ehlers-Danlos. We're kind of always on. We're like, you know, my, my dad jokes that I have two modes, you know, capital, all capital letters on or off, like I'm completely <laughs> on or I'm completely off. And, and that's true. And it's like, but that's not how, you know, I'd rather be in the middle. I'd rather just be kind of going with the flow and not having such a, a hard transition back and forth. And I think what you're saying really speaks to that ambiguity and that just strangeness of how our symptoms present, um, which in a strange way brings me to my next question in a way that I think we've already answered it. But I, I think maybe we'll sort of put a different, we can frame it through the lens of this question. So um, many patients with hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, go years and years without a diagnosis, despite reporting symptoms to, to their doctors. And many patients report seeing doctors who are unfamiliar or even misinformed when it comes to these conditions. Um, do you have thoughts on why this is so widespread of a problem in our community? Um. I don't know if I, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's a genetic problem. So, um, you know, that's, that's between mom and dad, but, um, <laughs> but I think when, when somebody comes in to a family doctor's office and, you know, they listen to your heart, listen to your lungs and, and, and all that, I think, again, I, I think it comes down to, they look at the end organ. I mean, I really do think um, that I, th I think there's a lot of people out there that 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 have EDS that don't know about it because they're looking at all the comorbidities that they have from a dysautonomic problem. But I think that's that's yeah. I think there's going to be a, a, a I think there's a lot more people out there that that have EDS connective tissue than than what we're seeing now. But what I think is going on is a lot of the people that are treating them, like me and others, when they first kind of you know saw them years years ago, mm -hmm. you look at the high heart rate. You can have a cardiologist for the high heart rate. You can have an upper GI and a lower GI doc for your gut problems. You can have a you know a neurologist for maybe the brain fog, a different neurologist for the peripheral stuff, uh, and they're they're looking at all these end organs instead of kind of tying it back to, hey, could this be a central mechanism causing this? And, you know, let's let's look at maybe a genetic test or some something like that if you're, and I know this is a very um, uh, generalized thing, but if you're a, you know, taller female and you're this, the best dancer in the county because you can do all the fun things that dancers should do, that should be like a little ding, ding, ding. Hey, let's, uh, you know, let's let's take a look at this. But 
you know, you you really can't, using air quotes here, treat e, the EDS, you know, you can't treat that, but you sure as heck could could give them some some thoughts on what things you can or should or shouldn't be doing going forward, and then, you know, um, help out with the heart rate, help out with the gut. But again, if you're, my opinion, again, if you're just treating the, the end organ, um, you're putting a bandage on an artery bleed, because if you don't fix central command, like where's the control mechanism at? And that's it's not at the heart, it's in the brain or it's in the brainstem. And uh, you really, again, I don't think this is going to be like a cure-all for everybody, but I think this type of uh, uh, looking at the, the central control me- mechanisms, I think it should be an integral part of treatment because um, if the brain controls a lot of stuff, I mean, it's it's the big dog up there. It's, it's the CEO. And if different areas coming up don't work right you can't expect the brain to control everything perfect it just it just doesn't work yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and it's unfortunate because and i think i think dr rodney graham um alluded to this although i I may be confusing him with someone else but i remember someone prominent in the eds field talking about how this is a population of people who are really often cut down in their prime so to speak, that they're really, really successful in their earlier years. Um, you have a ton of drive, ton of motivation. They can do, they can, they're almost superhuman. They can do more because they can push because they don't have that inhibition. Like we were talking about, we can just go, 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 go. But, you know, eventually that fails and can't, you know, just burn the candle at both ends forever. And then, so we have this sort of steep decline and, and that's really hard to wrap your head around. And I think the, the medical establishment has sort of been slow to catch up to the idea that you can have people that quote unquote look healthy. And you know, we get told this all the time, oh, you look so great. You look great. But, but there can be a lot going on that's very dysfunctional in terms of the, the body's functioning and then, you know, the brain's interpretation of that functioning and then the behavior that flows from that functioning too. Yeah. I mean, if you, uh, if you look at some of the females, you know, they, uh, a lot of the time, well, with any of the population, you know, it kind of hits around puberty or so. And, but I found at least there's definitely some, some signs that could be picked up beforehand and we're really, uh, I'm really trying to work on that uh, to figure out what are some telltale signs for, say, pediatricians or um, pediatrics to to really look at. Because if you talk to a lot of EDS current patients and you kind of ask them about some of their their uh, time growing up, there's an eerie similarity between a lot of those patients. I mean, it's really uh, it's more than just a, a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's some telltale signs that are there that hey, maybe your autonomics aren't working so well right now. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there's something you can do about it, or maybe you know at least look at it, and maybe you can do some something to uh, not let that freight train keep running down the track until your system's asked at puberty to just kick in crazy amounts of, of hormonal and neurochemical things. And that's when your system's already primed. 
And then it's just like a party. I mean, it's like everybody's playing now and you don't need that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, it's a, it's a very important reminder of the need for early awareness and intervention so that people can be knowledgeable about these things. Because I think being in the dark and having these things surprise you adds to the element of, you know, your heart starts racing, you know, because of whatever autonomic dysfunction. Well, that is makes you scared because why is your heart racing and then that makes your heart race more because you're scared that your heart's racing and you sort of you can easily spiral in so many different directions without you know the adequate sort of understanding and knowledge and you know it's it's amazing to me even I always thought oh hydration was just drinking water you know and it took me until very late until adult hood you know frankly to learn that hydration is a complex balance of electrolytes that it's sodium potassium you know calcium magnesium and these things have to be in balance for your tissues to be um hydrated and properly Mm -hmm. uh, lubricated or i don't you know i don't know exactly how to describe it but you know we just think oh water great but if you just drink a ton of water you'll actually dehydrate yourself because you're stripping out some of those um Mm -hmm you know, potassium and calcium things that you may need. So it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating how sort of how basic some of this stuff is and yet how little knowledge and sort of how like the big picture hasn't been put together in terms of EDS. We're sort of looked at as one-offs. Oh, you have this strange problem. Oh, you can't cope with this. Oh, you can't sit too long. Oh, you have this injury. It's sort of the piecemeal approach. And yet what we're talking about is ultimately very simple fundamentals um, about how the biochemistry of the body functions and where it can go yep. awry. I guess it's all about homeo. It's all about homeostatic function. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it is. Um, so many patients, as you know, are with conditions like POTS are treated with a protocol, and we talked about how um, how much you love the word protocol, right? Um, yeah, in with either medications like midodrine, Florinaf, and exercises, or a plan of physical therapy for hypermobility conditions. Um, do you have thoughts on this process and what happens when a patient tries a standard protocol for their diagnoses but does not get better? Yeah, I mean, sim- simply, we kind of touched on that, but uh, protocols work. I mean, they're there because randomized studies were done and they got the benefits that they wanted. That's great. If it works for you, thumbs up, keep on trucking, you know, but the ones that it doesn't work for, um, you know, you have to do something different. You know, there's that old, you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expect a different result, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where, again, things like I try to do at my office, um, I think could, could open a window that maybe isn't looked at, you know what I mean? And just give them a, a way to uh, do maybe a different therapy to get them to a point so they can start to exercise because exercise is good. But if, you know, every time you walk on a treadmill at the uh, PTOT, chiropractors, like whatever, and, you know, you do that on mon- Monday because they're telling you to do it for 20 or 30 minutes and you have to cancel your Wednesday and Thursday appointments because you're so sore and you come in Friday, you do it again and you have to cancel the Monday appointment because you're so sore you got to think that might not be the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you should look at some other alternative treat, treatment care. And maybe it's just, again, just you're not ready for it. You're not ready to, you know, 
again, use a, a dumb example, but if, if, if you got a kid who still thinks an eight is a snowman, you're not going to teach them algebra yet. They're just not ready for it. Let, make sure they know an eight is an eight first. And then, so that being said, uh, are there particular types of exercise that you've seen with your patients with that are hypermobile or have Ehlers-Danlos that you think are, um, you know, make things worse or seem to be helpful? Or do you think it's just completely individualized? It is based on what I was taught. It's called the central integrative state of your body. Like, how do you take the input that you get from X, whatever X is? It could be walking on a treadmill. It could be uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. It could be eye exercises. It could be vestibular exercise. It could be anything. How does your body process it? And do you get, and this is, I think, really key, do you get the outcome that you're looking for? You know what I mean? Like, do you get, if, if, if you're expecting X, do you get X or something really close to X with the therapy that you did? Mm-hmm. If you don't, you might want to reassess and say, maybe that therapy wasn't what we want to do. Mm-hmm. It could be Y, it could be A that's good. And that's where I think going back to like the examination and all that, if you understand some of the physiology behind it or the neurology behind it, you could really hone in on what areas of the brain aren't working as well as what they should. And then you could formulate treatment plans or treatments for it to, instead of dropping like a bomb on it, you're like a sniper (laughs) trying to affect that area or two areas or three areas instead of just dumping the whole thing on them. I think that's a really good analogy. It's it's reminds me of that old adage: if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem you have is a nail. And I think with us, with Ehlers Danlos, you know, surgery is like our hammer. Um, like you know, things break. Okay, you you know, you get surgery, fix it. That's it's just so common. But you know, it really is worth taking a step back and taking a holistic look at okay, what are the risks and benefits and objectives, and yeah, and how can we mitigate? You know, is there a way to find? You know, can we find a way to work within what what we have? Like, is surgery, you know, even when surgery is indicated, it's like, are there other alternatives? I mean, that's something I'm very much kind of exploring right now myself, because I've been recommended to have a spinal fusion, but I've heard that it can really make, I've, I've seen horror stories of people getting worse. I've seen great stories of people getting much better. And it's, it's just really, it feels like a huge gamble to take with, you know, one spine. Yeah. I think just in general, and I even think neurosurgeons would agree that should be the last step. I mean, I don't think anybody would say, Hey, let's try the surgery first and then we'll do some PT, OT, whatever to try to get you. Now, I don't think anybody would, would say that, but, um, yeah, I think, I think you should exhaust, not you personally, you as a collective, you know, the EDS group should, Mm -hmm exhaust every avenue but if um if if the only avenues you try are kind of the protocols that are out there you really haven't tried all of the avenues and uh, i think this type of brain-based type of treatment i do think i think it's going to take a while to get there but i do think it's going to be part and parcel of the first 
kind of line of defense to kind of rewire the EDS patient uh, to their system mm-hmm. and make it function as good as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, just real quick, uh, in November, I had a patient that was literally, this is an incredible case. I mean, she was on the pre-op table um, and she was clinical instability, MRI, CT, DMX. She needed surgery. I mean, based on all the the numbers and her symptoms and all that. And uh, something just told her, nope, we're not doing it now. So she literally left. I mean, you know, the correct way she was, uh, you know, let let go. She told the surgeon, I'm not ready for it. Fine. And I think I saw her in November. I think she did that in September or August. And uh, she had POTS really, really bad. I mean, really, really bad. She would stand up heart rate 140 or so. And, um, you know, we saw her for a week. And a couple weeks post seeing me, she gave me a text or email, I forget, but she said something, you know, I'm going up and down the steps and my heart rate's 90. Wow. So, you know, was the, was the instability in the neck, the cause of the dysautonomic POTS type of thing? She still has it. You know, nothing was done. I didn't un-EDS her. I didn't Mm -hmm. tighten any ligaments up. Mm -hmm. It was a neurologic problem. Mm -hmm. You know, now I told her, hey, don't, you got to quit tummy sleeping, but, mm-hmm. you know, with the head turned the whole way, but, you know, she's functioning without surgical intervention. Um, and she's doing okay. I mean, I don't know if my heart rate wouldn't go above nine, 90 going up and down steps. I don't know, but that's, yeah. that's a, that was her, that was the reason, you know, that was her big thing that was causing her to say, it's my C1 two That's just loose. I want to get it fixed. And, she still has has it, but she's not having the sim the symptoms that was re- related using air quotes to the instability. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's such a great point to make, and I and just to clarify for our listeners, if it isn't already clear, Dr. Lasko's approach really, um, as I understand it, involves you know this full neurologic examination and then sort of a movement treatment plan and exercises designed to recalibrate the body and and get you to understand your your set point and things to do to mitigate symptoms. So it's uh, not, I guess, what people would think of as traditional, like, you know, the, I'm sure manipulations are part of your practice, but it's a more holistic and sort of how, how do we teach this person to find their own internal balance point and work towards it? Is that roughly sort of a... You're in the ballpark. Okay. All right. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I don't do a lot of manipulation anymore. I really don't. And it's just because a lot of my patients, uh, I don't think they could handle it. I just don't. I think their system is so fragile, for lack of a better word, yeah. uh, that that would be like uh, my wife sending me to the store and she just rattles off 20 things for me to get. I'm going to be like, I'm going to go to the store, but I'm going to get a Kit Kat bar for, for me. And that's it. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, yeah, like we try to retrain, rewire, if you want to use that word, how your central nervous system works. And it's really to build up some of the 
pathways that aren't functioning well. And again, I just think it comes back down to that lack of inhibition with so many of these problems, because uh, uh, I see that a lot with the patients that I examine. It can all be kind of traced back to, yeah, that thing is just working and it shouldn't be. That thing's working way too hard and it shouldn't be. And a, and a lot of that is not all of them, but a lot of them is a, a more sympathetic, dominant fight flight type of of system. And that can trickle over into, like we talked a little bit about OCD stuff, high anxiety, not sleeping, tacky, gut shuts down, tremory. And, you know, you shouldn't, you should move when you want to, you shouldn't be sitting there moving when you don't want to, you should be able to inhibit some of the thoughts that just race in your head. That's not a, that's not a good functioning cortex. It's, just not. And like I said, there's certain areas of the brain that control these areas. And if you could tease out from an exam where that area is kind of broke or where the other areas are broke, you could formulate a pretty good treatment plan really specific for them. The only caveat is, is that that's individual to each person. Mm -hmm. Even though a lot of you have, you know, tachycardia or their gut doesn't work exactly great that literally could be coming from eight or 10 different areas in your brain because I read somewhere, just to give you an idea, I think I read somewhere there's 120 quadrillion neural impulses in the brain every second. I don't know how many uh, zeros that, that is. Too many. But Way yeah, too many. you're never, you're never going to get a protocol for this because your brain is individual to you, to your, your sensory experiences from birth until now. And the treatment has to be specific for how your nervous system ex- expresses itself, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. <laughs> this is this is music to my ears, and I, I I really resonate with that perspective because I think as much as people living with Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobility conditions have in common, and we do have so much in common, it's almost eerie. We you know we tell our stories in our support groups, and sometimes recently I was on a support group call and someone introduced herself. And I said, my story is basically the exact same as hers, even down to the dates. So uh, same thing. It's eerie. As much similarity as we have, there's also extreme difference. And we all have our own individualized experience with this. And, you know, that's why it's, it's so hard. You know, I, it's hard. There, there really isn't one sort of coalescing point around that sort of speaks for all of us or speaks to all of us because we are all so individualized and we, and we need to be recognized as such. And maybe that's kind of the defining feature of fiber mobility. Like as much as we have in common, we are, you know, truly individuals with our own autonomic dysfunction issues. And, and we, and for the longest time, I've really thought, you know, if only someone would look at us and listen to us and, and try to learn from what we're telling them. And, and so it's, it's so great to, to meet you because it seems that you've, you've done exactly that. You seem to have listened to your patients over the years, observed, you know, trial and error, like true kind of scientific process to figure out, you know, what's going to make these people feel better and function better and have, have more control over their lives. And, you know, feel not feel like they're stuck in this pendulum swing between fight or flight or 
dead asleep. And yeah, I think uh, I forget. I don't know. It was uh, I'm on a couple of EDS groups, like an Echo program and all that. But it, it's it's kind of funny because you guys are the zebras, right? <laughs> okay, different stripes, different mm-hmm. all of that individualized stuff. And um, it, it was funny because I questioned one doc and you know about the individuality of care with the zebras being all different. And like, how can you protocolize? I don't know if that's a word, but it is to me. Mm-hmm. How, how can you protocolize one thing for all of these different stripes? And, uh, you know, the answer was kind of crickets, because if because if I come in with uh, some gut problems and you come in with gut problems, we're going to get the exact same care. Uh, you're a little different than me if you have EDS. And, mm-hmm. and I still think I still go back to this and I'm really trying to get this out to as many other treating docs as I can is that the individuality of care is going to be so important to you guys going forward because uh, you, you don't generally again, big picture. Generally, you guys don't do real well with, you know, protocols. You, tr- you truly don't. And it's just because they, they're trying again. I mean, I think, I don't think there's a doc out there that's saying, you know, I just want to mess with the EDS group and, you know, do, they, 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 like you said, they, uh, they pull the hammer out and pray they're not trying to pound in a screw. Yeah, I agree. I, I, yeah, for the most part, I don't think it's basically it's, I don't think it's malicious. Uh, but I think most doctors fail to understand how weakened collagen can affect so much of the body and the brain and the behavior, yep. how it's it can be at the root of essentially everything in our lives. And, you know, a lot of people, I, I still to this day, I hear people talking about, oh, benign joint hypermobility, or I hear, you know, people saying things like, oh, it must be nice to be so flexible. Oh, how good for you. And, you know, I had someone tell me once, because um, my blood pressure gets uh, dangerously low sometimes. And someone said, oh, how lucky, because mine's really high. So you're lucky to have low blood pressure. And I'm, like no like they're both bad like you need you want adequate blood pressure you don't want either extreme but because i you know i guess we're zebras in the sense that we're like you know we have this degraded or um uh defective collagen tissue weakened um more stretchy more flexible but that does manifest itself in you know tons of different ways and i think it's interesting i mean we learn there's these motor neurons right we learn from watching other humans do things and that's a lot of how we learn movement interaction and so hypermobile people for the most part grow up in communities where most of the people around them are not hypermobile right maybe their family is maybe a few members of their family are maybe their whole family is but when they go to school, when they go to their job, most of the people there are not hypermobile. So they, you're looking around and you're like, well, how come that guy can sit at his desk with no pain for four hours, but I'm like, you know, twitching and I can't, you know, sit still. And, and so it's, again, I guess just folds back into the point. We need more knowledge. We need more awareness. And more than anything, we need individualized treatment plans because we are individuals and, and our condition is such that it manifests in in very different ways and then you pile life experience on top of that and nutrition and you know whatever else has happened and so you know people really need 
um, truly tailored medicine and, and that's what you provide. And so kudos to you for um, <laughs> carving out this practice because it's, uh, it's really, really fascinating. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully uh, meeting you as soon as the, you know, snows and the roads free up and I can make my way that way. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a great perspective and, you know, thanks for all, all you do on behalf of the, hypermobility community and it's 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 just clear to me that you've listened to us and have you know tried to figure us out and you've seen us as a puzzle and sort of an interesting um you know not that we're not that you're objectifying or anything but you see us as people to figure out and you're curious and that's really in stark contrast to a lot of doctors that we encounter in the hypermobile community where we come in and we're met with a lot of resistance and, frankly, anti-curiosity. It's, it's like, you look fine. You're not overweight. Why are you wasting my time? You know, you're, you're, it's not, your levels are not that far off normal, you know, you're whatever. So I <laughs> find your approach, you know, extremely refreshing and, and very necessary and just super helpful to this community. And I'm so glad um, that I was connected to you through a listener. So thanks to, thanks to the listeners who, um, you know, facilitate these kind of, um, connections. So, um, yeah, it's been fascinating talking to you. I have one last question and then I'll let you go. Um, what do you think are the key areas of research that are necessary to learn more about hypermobility conditions? Well, if the listeners haven't got this by now, we're going to cement it right, right now. I really do think going forward, these central control areas really have to be looked at because that, and, and that could start very, very, very young. I mean, very young, but um, things like, uh, you know, frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex function on things like heart rate or, uh, you know, gut function, function uh, has the midbrain, like all these central control mechanisms, because we're so integrated that it's, it's not just going to be one area to focus on, because uh, like I said, of those 140 quadrillion neural imp impulses, like everything's connected up there, right and left brains connected. It's, again, I, I don't think this is going to be like a, a panacea of, you know, this is all that's going to be needed. But it definitely should be an integral part. And, and I just think it should be kind of the first line because it's it's non-invasive. There's no side effects from it for the most part. I mean, you know, everybody kind of has a little blip and say, oh, that was too much or not enough or whatever. But I mean, but yeah, I mean, this the, a, a brain-based ther therapy to start is going to be really, really good because you can see differences in patients and um, there's definitely a hemispheric dominance to some of the patients that are there. And it just makes sense. If you can, if you could balance that out, the system's going to function better. And if it functions better, again, we're not un EDSing anybody, but if you can live with that and live in a, in your realm of functioning, I mean, you should be able to go for a walk. You should be able to, to sit around. You should be able to eat some pizza or get a burger salad or whatever um and not have to only eat you know four different 
food groups or four different foods mm-hmm. that you can handle. Your system isn't meant to work that that way. And mm-hmm. the ultimate controller is your you know cortex. Well, that's fascinating. I completely share your hopes for future research and and research that's more holistically inclined, looking at um, you know these things at a bigger picture level, because I think there is there's such a siloing in medicine. Everyone specializes in their little part, and it's unfortunate because it's it, it it's long felt to me like there has to be some kind of unifying thing that is underneath all of these seemingly disconnected things. It just intuitively feels that way to me. And I think your approach so makes a lot of intuitive sense, uh, I guess, based on my own personal experience. So thank you so much to Dr. Kevin Lasko for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate your insights and all you've done for the hypermobility community and people with EDS. Um, That's all for this episode of Hypermobility Happy Hour. If you're enjoying this podcast, please go to Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. It helps us to shape the content of the podcast and to share and get this to more listeners. Uh, We're also available at hypermobilityhappyhour.gmail.com if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.